0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Today's story, by Vladimir Nabokov, is called Symbols and Signs. He must be always on his guard and devote every
1: minute and module of life to the decoding of the undulation
0: of things. Symbols and Signs was published 60 years ago, in May of 1948. It was chosen for the podcast by Mary Gateskill, author of the novels Veronica and Two Girls Fat and Thin, and two short story collections. Her story, Don't Cry, appears in the summer fiction issue of the magazine. Hi, Mary. Hi. You, you said in an interview a few years ago that your favorite authors have changed over time, but Nabokov is always on the short list. Why is that?
1: I don't, I don't know if it's possible to say. I, I think that he speaks to me on, on so many in so many different ways, both the comedy and profound sadness and quickness and delightedness. If if it's a deep affection, it's
0: like falling in love with a person. I mean, you may come up with reasons, but the reasons are really pretty irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Symbols and Signs was published when Nabokov was 49. In the 30 years after that, he published another 33 stories in The New Yorker. So what what made you choose this one today? It's one of the best stories I've ever read. In six
1: pages, it, it talks about a very... Some ways, very simple and discreet story. It's also got something enormous bleeding through the very small conduit of the plot. It it talks about the unknowability of life, I think, of human the human experience in the world, and of the smallness and vulnerability of people in a vast, I, I don't even know what to call it, vast pattern for lack of a better word mm-hmm. of a better word that's beyond their comprehension and yet glimmers of which they can see out of the corner of their eye. Mm
0: -hmm. It's very poignant. The plot of the story deals with an elderly Russian emigre couple who are visiting their son who is mentally ill in the hospital. Is there anything else you think listeners should be aware of as they hear the story? There's a lot of different emotional
1: tonalities in the story. There's a lot of kind of a droll comedy. There's a great sense of the ordinary That also runs very close with the sense of the fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, Just that very uh, subtle sort of
0: changing of tones, or sometimes not so subtle changing of tones, makes the story quite extraordinary. We'll talk more about the story later in the program. Now here's Mary Gateskill reading Vladimir Nabokov's story, Symbols and Signs. For the fourth time in his many years,
1: they were confronted with the problem of what birthday present to bring a young man who was incurably deranged in his mind. He had no desires. Man-made objects were to him either hives of evil, vibrant with a malignant activity that he alone could perceive, or gross comforts for which no use could be found in his abstract world. After eliminating a number of articles that might offend him or frighten him, anything in the gadget line, for instance, was taboo, his parents chose a dainty and innocent trifle, a basket with ten different fruit jellies, in ten little jars. At the time of his birth, they had been married already for a long time. A score of years had elapsed, and now they were quite old. Her drab gray hair was done anyhow. She wore cheap black dresses. Unlike other women of her age, such as Mrs. Saul, their next-door neighbor, whose face was all pink and mauve with paint, and whose hat was a cluster of Brookside flowers— she presented a naked white countenance to the fault-finding light of spring days. Her husband, who in the old country had been a fairly successful businessman, was now wholly dependent on his brother Isaac, a real American of almost 40 years standing. They seldom saw him and had nicknamed him the Prince. That Friday, everything went wrong. The underground train lost its life current between two stations— and for a quarter of an hour, one could hear nothing but the dutiful beating of one's heart and the rustling of newspapers. The bus they had to take next kept them waiting for ages, and when it did come, it was crammed with garrulous high school children. It was raining hard as they walked up the brown path leading to the sanatorium. There they waited again, and instead of their boy shuffling into the room as he usually did, his poor face botched with acne, ill-shaven, sullen and confused. A nurse they knew and did not care for appeared at last and brightly explained that he had again attempted to take his life. He was all right, she said, but a visit might disturb him. The place was so miserably understaffed, and things got mislaid or mixed up so easily that they decided not to leave their present in the office, but to bring it to him next time they came. She waited for her husband to open his umbrella and then took his arm he kept clearing his throat in a special resonant way he had when he was upset. They reached the bus stop shelter on the other side of the street, and he closed his umbrella. A few feet away under a swaying and dripping tree, a tiny, half-dead, unfledged bird was helplessly twitching in a puddle. During the long ride to the subway station, she and her husband did not exchange a word, and every time she glanced at his old hands, swollen veins, brown-spotted skin, clasped and twitching upon the handle of his umbrella. She felt the mounting pressure of tears. As she looked around, trying to hook her mind onto something, it gave her a kind of soft shock, a mixture of compassion and wonder, to notice that one of the passengers, a girl with dark hair and grubby red toenails, was weeping on the shoulder of an older woman. Whom did that woman resemble? She resembled Rebecca Borisovna, whose daughter had married one of the Soloveichiks in Minsk years ago. The last time he had tried to do it, his method had been, in the doctor's words, a masterpiece of inventiveness. He would have succeeded had not an envious fellow patient thought he was learning to fly and stopped him. What he really wanted to do was tear a hole in his world and escape. The system of his delusions had been the subject of an elaborate paper in a scientific monthly But long before that, she and her husband had puzzled it out for themselves. Referential mania, Herman Brink had called it. In these very rare cases, the patient imagines that everything happening around him is a veiled reference to his personality and existence. He excludes real people from the conspiracy because he considers himself to be so much more intelligent than other men. Phenomenal nature shadows him wherever he goes. Clouds in the staring sky transmit to one another by means of slow signs, incredibly detailed information regarding him. His inmost thoughts are discussed at nightfall in manual alphabet by darkly gesticulating trees. Pebbles or stains or sunflecks form patterns representing in some awful way messages which he must intercept. Everything is a cipher, and of everything he is the theme. Some of the spies are detached observers, such as glass surfaces and still pools. Others, such as coats and store windows, are prejudice witnesses, lynchers at heart. Others, again, running water, storms, are hysterical to the point of insanity, have a distorted opinion of him, and grotesquely misinterpret his actions. He must be always on his guard and devote every minute and module of life to the decoding of the undulation of things. The very air he exhales is indexed and filed away. If only the interest he provokes were limited to his immediate surroundings, but alas, it is not. With distance, the torrents of wild scandal increase in volume and volubility— The silhouettes of his blood corpuscles, magnified a million times, flit over vast plains, and still farther, great mountains of unbearable solidity and height sum up in terms of granite and groaning firs the ultimate truth of his being. When they emerged from the thunder and foul air of the subway, the last dregs of the day were mixed with the streetlights. She wanted to buy some fish for supper, so she handed him the basket of jelly jars, telling him to go home. He walked up to the third landing and then remembered he had given her his keys earlier in the day. In silence, he sat down on the steps, and in silence rose when some ten minutes later she came, heavily trudging upstairs, wanly smiling, shaking her head in deprecation of her silliness. They entered their two-room flat, and he at once went to the mirror. Straining the corners of his mouth apart by means of his thumbs, with a horrible mask-like grimace, he removed his new, hopelessly uncomfortable dental plate and severed the long tusks of saliva connecting him to it. He read his Russian-language newspaper while she laid the table. Still reading, he ate the pale victuals that needed no teeth. She knew his moods and was also silent. When he had gone to bed, she remained in the living room with her pack of soiled cards and her old albums. Across the narrow yard where the rain tinkled in the dark against some battered ash cans, windows were blandly alight, and in one of them, a black-trousered man with his bare elbows raised could be seen lying supine on an untidy bed. She pulled the blind down and examined the photographs. As a baby, he looked more surprised than most babies. From a fold in the album, a German maid they had had in Leipzig and her fat-faced fiancé fell out. Minsk, the revolution, Leipzig, Berlin, Leipzig, a slanting housefront badly out of focus. Four years old in a park, moodily, shyly, with puckered forehead, looking away from an eager squirrel as he would from any other stranger. Aunt Rosa, a fussy, angular, wild-eyed old lady who had lived in a tremulous world of bad news, bankruptcies, train accidents, cancerous growths, until the Germans put her to death, together with all the people she had worried about. Age six, that was when he drew wonderful birds with human hands and feet and suffered from insomnia like a grown-up man. His cousin, now a famous chess player, he again, aged about eight, Already difficult to understand, afraid of the wallpaper in the passage, afraid of a certain picture in a book, which merely showed an idyllic landscape with rocks on a hillside, and an old cartwheel hanging from the branch of a leafless tree. Age ten, the year they left Europe. The shame, the pity, the humiliating difficulties, the ugly, vicious, backward children he was with in that special school. And then came a time in his life, coinciding with a long convalescence after pneumonia, when those little phobias of his, which his parents had stubbornly regarded as the eccentricities of a prodigiously gifted child, hardened, as it were, into a dense tangle of logically interacting illusions, making him totally inaccessible to normal minds. This, and much more, she accepted, For after all, living did mean accepting the loss of one joy after another, not even joys in her case, mere possibilities of improvement. She thought of the endless waves of pain that for some reason or other she and her husband had to endure, of the invisible giants hurting her boy in some unimaginable fashion, of the incalculable amount of tenderness contained in the world, of the fate of this tenderness, which is either crushed or wasted, or transformed into madness, of neglected children humming to themselves in unswept corners, of beautiful weeds that cannot hide from the farmer and helplessly have to watch the shadow of his simian stoop leave mangled flowers in its wake as the monstrous darkness approaches. It was past midnight when from the living room she heard her husband moan, and presently he staggered in, wearing over his nightgown the old overcoat with astrakhan collar, which he much preferred to the nice blue bathrobe he had. "'I can't sleep,' he cried. "'Why?' she asked. "'Why can't you sleep? You were so tired.' "'I can't sleep because I am dying,' he said, and lay down on the couch. "'Is it your stomach? Do you want me to call Dr. Solov? "'No doctors, no doctors,' he moaned. "'To the devil with doctors. We must get him out of there quick.' Otherwise, we'll be responsible. Responsible! he repeated and hurled himself into a sitting position, both feet on the floor, thumping his forehead with his clenched fist. All right, she said quietly. We shall bring him home tomorrow morning. I would like some tea, said her husband, and retired to the bathroom. Bending with difficulty, she retrieved some playing cards and a photograph or two that had slipped from the couch to the floor. Knave of Hearts, Nine of Spades, Ace of Spades, Elsa and Her Bestial Beau. He returned in high spirits, saying in a loud voice, I have it all figured out. We will give him the bedroom. Each of us will spend part of the night near him, and the other part on this couch. By turns, we will have the doctor see him at least twice a week. It does not matter what the prince says. He won't have to say much anyway, because it will come out cheaper. The telephone rang. It was an unusual hour for their telephone to ring. His left slipper had come off, and he groped for it with his heel and toe as he stood in the middle of the room and childishly, toothlessly gaped at his wife. Having more English than he did, it was she who attended to calls. "'Can I speak to Charlie?' said a girl's dull little voice. "'What number you want?' "'No, that is not the right number.' The receiver was gently cradled. Her hand went to her old, tired heart. It frightened me, she said. He smiled a quick smile and immediately resumed his excited monologue. They would fetch him as soon as it was day. Knives would have to be kept in a locked drawer. Even at his worst, he presented no danger to other people. The telephone rang a second time. The same toneless, anxious young voice asked for Charlie. "'You have the incorrect number. "'I will tell you what you are doing. "'You are turning the letter O instead of the zero. "'They sat down to their unexpected, festive midnight tea. "'The birthday present stood on the table. "'He sipped noisily. "'His face was flushed. "'Every now and then he imparted a circular motion "'to his raised glass "'so as to make the sugar dissolve more thoroughly. "'The vein on the side of his bald head— where there was a large birthmark, stood out conspicuously, and although he had shaved that morning, a silvery bristle showed on his chin. While she poured him another glass of tea, he put on his spectacles and re-examined with pleasure the luminous yellow, green, red little jars. His clumsy, moist lips spelled out their eloquent labels. Apricot. Grape. beech Plum. Quince. He had got to Crabapple when the telephone rang again.
0: That was Mary Gateskill reading Symbols and Signs by Vladimir Nabokov, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1948 and is included in the stories of Vladimir Nabokov, published in paperback by Vintage. You can also find the story on our website, newyorker.com. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Mary, what's interesting is that when the story was republished after being in The New Yorker, the title was reversed from Symbols and Signs to Signs and Symbols. And I've actually spent a lot of time this week trying to track down the reason for that. Oh, he reversed it. Uh, okay. He And apparently he, he always wanted it to be Signs and Symbols, and there was an argument with his editor at the time at The New Yorker, Catherine White, who wanted to reverse it. And I haven't actually been able to find out her reason for wanting that. I think that the reason he wanted it as signs and symbols was for a certain resonance with the phrase signs and symptoms, the uh, medical phrase. So I'm not sure actually why, why we have it in this particular order, but it was an editorial decision made uh, 60 years ago. <laughs>
1: it makes sense what you just said, but it, I, it does have a different feeling to it also. Symbols and signs sounds more whimsical to me. Mm-hmm. It sounds a little lighter.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the irony of this story is that the son's madness revolves around this pattern he has of, of reading significance into everything around him. And yet Nabokov calls the story Symbols and Signs or Signs and Symbols, which is really an invitation to us to read significance into everything in the story. <laughs> and, you know, there are so many things that you can interpret as symbols or symbolic of something from that helpless bird twitching in the puddle to the the cards that the mother drops at the end, to the or even the order of the fruits as he reads them out at the end. And, and you know, hundreds of Academic papers have been written on this subject, I'm sure. But um, you mentioned to me earlier that you had a, an interpretation of the story that was different from from the standard ones, and I wonder in what in what way that differs. Well,
1: I perhaps misspoke myself a little bit um, because I realized that my interpretation isn't quite as unusual as I thought. <laughs> um, it's shared by uh, Michael Wood, who uh-huh. I, I dipped into before I, I came to this, because I've actually not read many. I'm just I'm talking about conversations I've had with with other. Uh, writers or or critics, Mm -hmm. many of whom seem to interpret the ending as the phone call, as the the hospital saying that the son has killed himself. That always seemed a little irrelevant to me. Mm -hmm. I think that the title, Signs and Symbols, does invite the reader to look at the story that way, the phone call, the cards, the things you mentioned. But any system of symbology or signage is about order. It's about creating a pattern, Mm -hmm. a recognizable system which will guide you through life in some way. And that to me is how I see it, more more than an invitation to interpret those things like the bird or, or anything else. But at the same time, the bird are, and the cards are sort of a really like pathetic and or comical or slightly slightly sinister way of invoking a system of some kind, a system of literary symbology with the bird and a system of, I mean, Ace of spades. Um, <laughs> nine of spades, and then up pops Elsa and her bestial
0: bow. It's mm-hmm. like this little demon face pops up in the order. Mm-hmm. But to Who, me... The implication tele- is that they were affiliated with the Nazis, or there's something that way even,
1: that they German,
0: were, the German maid?
1: I didn't even think that, although you could yeah. take it that way, certainly. I did, but yeah. I didn't even go there. I just thought, the, the fact that he's Bestial, some and that the, the face has popped up in this order of abstract symbology. It's kind of like surprise. It's like just a, mm-hmm. a little demon somehow. But the phone call seems to me to be more like a a place has been created in the structure of the story, and little hints of it have been strewn throughout. But in that passage where he, you have his system, which is described in this comical, somewhat hysterical terrible fashion, it's not only a description of paranoia, it's not just that it's he's seeing this order, it's all about him. Mm-hmm. It's an order it's an order of complete self absorption, which is a hellish place to be actually. Mm-hmm. And then we have this dramatic cut after the the ultimate truth of his being to these people funnily emerging from the thunder and foul air Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the subway or from his mind, which we've just been in, um, just going on their errands and wanting fish for dinner and making mistakes and sitting there. And yet when they come into their apartment, one of the first thing he does is straining the corners of his mouth apart by means of his thumbs with a horrible mask-like grimace. He removed his new hopelessly uncomfortable dental plate and severed the long tusks of saliva connecting him to it. One minute we have a nice old man, next minute it's a, it's
0: a monster. Death face, death mask. Yeah, yeah. There, there's like another
1: yeah. world is peeking through, the apparent world. And this wonderful thing he does with the photographs. Um I also like in the in the story the way there's a very broad currents evoked and then very specific ones. Minsk, the revolution, Leipzig, Berlin, Leipzig. Big like places where lots of people live, huge historical events. Then A Slanting House Front, Badly Out of Focus, which is, again, very mundane, small, mm-hmm. ordinary, but also something a little funny about it. It's badly mm-hmm. out of is, focus. Why is it slanting also? Aunt Rosa, this wild person, it's a great evocation of the ordinary and the strange. He's drawn these wonderful birds with human hands and feet. My favorite thing, the, why is he afraid of this picture of an idyllic landscape with rocks on a hillside, and an old cart hanging from the branch of well, a leafless cartwheel. Tree. Well,
0: there is an argument that he's referring to a Bruegel painting, uh, which I believe is called The Triumph of Death, and that this is a detail from that painting, and that the cartwheel is actually a torture instrument. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And this is a, a reference to a real painting, which is truly grotesque.
1: Well, without even knowing that, it has sort of a a couple of evocations there. On one hand, it's an old cartwheel hanging from the branch. What, what's wrong with that? It's a rocky hillside. But on the other hand, it's what's that doing there?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it has a, a... Again, it's kind of like this other world kind of popping up, this disorder or strange order, mm-hmm. which is potentially comic or sinister. Yeah, it's possible
0: that the sun is actually sane because this right. is truly a terrible exactly. picture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the phone call, the two interpretations of that final phone call are either that it's just the girl calling again with a wrong number or that it's the hospital calling with some news because otherwise why would they be calling so late at night? And obviously it's been left completely deliberately vague. Do you think that Nabokov had an intention there, that he knew which one of those things it was or whether there was a third possibility? I would not
1: presume to say what he was thinking. I have no idea. Could be the hospital, could be the wrong number, or could be an emissary from the sun's world. (laughs) <laughs> One of the, the clouds and tele- <laughs> clouds and uh, trees, whatever they are, speaking to them in a language that they don't understand. And I don't think the sun's right, by the way. I think he's nuts, but he's he's apprehending that there's some gigantic system outside the frame of their vision, and he's mm-hmm. desperately trying to understand it. He's made a misinterpretation, but nonetheless, there it is, and it's kind of reaching in <laughs> via this phone call to say high.
0: <laughs> In a not particularly kindly fashion. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. Something you said earlier was almost exactly what Nabokov said about this story, which is that it was a story wherein a second main story is woven into or placed behind the superficial semi-transparent one. Uh, on, on some level, that second main story I, I think could have to do with the Holocaust, could have to do with the, the history of this family, that they've obviously had a very traumatic escape from the Holocaust. And the implication is that perhaps this trauma, it may be what has caused the son to descend into madness. That in fact, perhaps his paranoia is quite logical. He's come from a place where he had every reason to be paranoid. And that last list of fruits, the list of fruits with the jams, there's a line that says the father spells out the fruits. And in the list, Nabokov included a, a deliberate misspelling, beech plum, which is normally spelled B-E-A-C-H, it is spelled B-E-E-C-H beach in german being buchen and Buchenwald, meaning beechwood and you know some people have taken that as a, another reference to this sort of hidden story behind the story which i actually wondered if he meant
1: something by I and mean, frankly the word play that Nabokov does is to me one of it, it's just not something that i'm especially interested in <laughs> but <laughs> i did wonder if there was anything about he had got to crab apple, if there was anything about crab apple
0: right that, that the, the fruits get rate, more yeah. and more bitter as they go along mm. they start he starts with the sweetest and he ends on the and, and he only reads five fruits and there are ten jellies, so who knows where that's going.
1: Well, I actually am inclined to think, I think that the the Nazis and their system certainly have some relevance to this, but I I would think it's something even deeper and bigger than that. Mm-hmm. That it's just the, in, the entire unknowability and tragic nature of human existence is the thing which is mm-hmm. bleeding through somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm 100% ready to stand behind this, but I tend to think that any great story, they all, all great stories have a second story coming through mm-hmm. it, that the plot is a, a sort of conduit or a sort of little mm-hmm. visible container that, that this thing can come
0: through. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. You can find Mary Gateskill's most recent story, Don't Cry, in our summer fiction issue. The issue also includes a previously unpublished story by Nabokov titled Natasha. Gateskill's latest novel, Veronica, is published by Pantheon. To hear more than a dozen previous fiction podcasts, as well as other free New Yorker podcasts, go to newyorker.com or visit the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.